What's up, everybody? Welcome to uh, another boardroom out of office podcast. This is podcast 20 with my man Gianni Harrell. 20 and 20, we got a special guest, somebody I'm excited to learn from today, actually, because he's the king of the trading card space right now, or one of the kings. And I'm trying to add that vertical heavily into our business. So without further ado, Mr. Dan Fleischman. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Is Entrepreneur a fair title for what you are? Absolutely. Yep. Which, and, and for entrepreneur, for me, like I've been pretty dead set on my thought lately that it's something you're born with um, and that you're wired a certain way. There's so many components that go into it and it doesn't always mean successful. But do you agree with me from, from that standpoint? Yeah, I always say that I would pick somebody that's from Compton over somebody from Harvard because the guy from Harvard has too many options and the guy from Compton's willing to die out there. And he's willing to work till two, three, four in the morning. He's willing to not sleep for two days if he has to. He'll pick up the trash. He'll deal with the billionaire CEO and then go clean up the floor. Like he'll do whatever. Yeah. And so I think that's in me because I do that. I'll be on stage talking on the stage. I'll go walk over to the billionaire, shake his hand. If somebody spills a drink on the stage, I'll walk back in front of 600 people and get on the floor and clean in front of them because I have no equal to it. And so I think that part can't be trained because you have to be willing to stay up morning, noon, and night and go through the struggles. And I don't think most people are built like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I asked Gary V. I saw that he said once that um, when, he, when he interviews people for a job and uh, they s- said they didn't go to school or as opposed to someone that had this great resume of uh, degrees, he leans towards the person that didn't go to school. And I challenged him on that because I didn't go to school. It's You didn't go to college, but that's not real life. And entrepreneurs can go to college and can grow up in Beverly Hills. But what's happened is is that I think the mandate now, and I, I did a college lecture for the part of the Boardroom University, and someone asked Mark Lazary, like for a tool or a trick on rising, and he was just like, hard work? Um, is I think at the end of the day is that entrepreneur is this like tireless um, pursuit of success and, and achieving something. I think the difference is mainly between a business person and an executive and an entrepreneur is a business person and executive, they check out at five o'clock. They show up at nine, they check out at five, they take their two weeks vacation and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a fantastic life. People can be happy with that. An entrepreneur can't be happy with that. You'll know you're an entrepreneur because you can't leave at five o'clock if there's still more to do. And you can't leave at six or at seven or at 9.34. You just can't leave because you have to keep going. That's an entrepreneur and that can't be taught. That has to be inside of you. Yeah. And that can, you could work for a company your whole career and be an entrepreneur and um, just never have a ceiling in your mind and never want to not be doing more and pursuing more. So school wasn't for you or what was your experience at school? So I saved up money in high school. So I was working three jobs. I saved up 43000 to go to SDSU. I was working at Qualcomm Stadium selling peanuts and Cracker Jacks, working at Ruby's Diner with my sailor cap on, working for a stockbroker under the table for 10 20 bucks an hour. You know, like I was doing everything I could to save up money. But then I trademarked the catchphrase, who's your daddy, for over 300 products. So I started making T-shirts and selling them at high school, 150 shirts for 10 15 bucks at a time. Making 1500 bucks, I felt like a millionaire, right? You're 17 years old. And so I saved up all this money for college, but instead the magic clothing convention came up. Same year as Damon John started FUBU, uh, Sean John, sorry, Sean John started the same year. And so I go there with my two booths 
I thought I was going to be the big, big dog because I got 20 feet instead of 10 feet. I show up and Sean John is there. Diddy's got a whole walkway, right? He's got the whole block. And on the other side of me is FUBU and they got the whole walkway. And so I was very humbled in that moment. Uh, but that changed my life because during that, during that convention, this is 1999, uh, we wrote over a million dollars in orders. And we didn't even have a manufacturer to make those clothes. So I went and found a manufacturer in, in LA who's still one of my dearest friends 20 years later. We set up a showroom in New York and I started flying back and forth. I'm going to New York, I'm going to a warehouse, back and forth, and I live in San Diego. So I show up to SDSU and the teacher walks, I walk in, the teacher says, you don't go here anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? And then he said, Dan, you don't go here. So wait, you just said my name. Like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So, well, after you miss three classes, I have to drop you and you've already missed seven. So that's it. It's over. And so I didn't fight with him over it. I just took a loss on the money that I'd spent on it. And I just focused my whole life on the clothing brand. So let me back up a, a tiny little bit. What got you to this convention? So you create, how old were you? You were, cause you, I saw you did other things when you were younger, you traded, you know, trading cards at conventions that your parents were at. I read up and did a little homework. And I think, you know, you see that across most entrepreneurs, these kind of small little businesses have kids. But what got you to this convention? What was that whole process? Sure. So I have the similar Gary Vee story. Moved, moved from Riga, Latvia when I was a baby. I was selling baseball cards at the swap meet. I had that whole hustle thing. And then when I started the clothing brand, that happened because my partner kept saying the catchphrase, who's your daddy? He just kept saying it on the football field. And so some people took it for sports, some people took it for sex, some people took it for humor, but everybody had like a reaction no matter what, and that's what helped us sell t-shirts. So I was just printing basic shirts at a store called T-Shirts Plus, you know, making them for five to eight bucks, selling them for 10 to 15. In high school. And just flipping them in high school, yeah, at 17. And so the first convention, we weren't even allowed to legally be there. Like we weren't even allowed to have a booth. I had to have my older brother help me get the booth and my partner's dad, et cetera. And so when we wrote those orders, that's when I went to LA to find the manufacturer to help us. The one we found, his name was Christian Wicks and his father was Christopher Wicks. So this guy was like a legend in the game. He had like Ocean Pacific, Body Glove, LA Gear, all those old school brands. Uh, he had the Fender guitar license worldwide for apparel. And at the time he owned a brand called English Laundry, the button ups, which he later sold for like 130 million. That guy changed my life because he was like this Austin Powers character. And I said, look, I wrote all these orders. I had a million dollars in orders from Miller's Outpost to uh, Dr. J's and Mr. Rags, uh, Yellow Rat Bastard in New York. I had all these places buying for me, but I'm 17, I'm 18, I'm a baby. And I don't know what to do. So he takes me under his wing and helps us. And the next year when we we're 19 years old, he actually got us a $9.5 million licensing deal from Starter Apparel. So Starter and the guys that own all the licenses for Starter and those type of brands in the UK gave us a 9.5 million minimum guarantee uh, for three years when I was 19. And that helped change our life also because we went through roller coasters of losing money, making money, getting screwed over, all the struggles uh, that a young entrepreneur goes through. We still got our quarterly checks, which helped a lot in that, in that process. So when you were building all that, you also were like this, like, did, were you, did you have a, like, did you focus solely on work or did you have a social life? Cause Gary said he didn't focus on any girls and didn't focus on anything. And I did, that probably was priority one for me. Was that anything you thought about at that age? Absolutely. So I had different football players living with me at the time. So I went to high school with Ricky Williams and when he went on to college during the off season, he would live with me. And so I have like the, his Ferrari Medina spider in the, in the garage Ricky Williams is there. He's got girls coming over all the time. Like Ricky was the man, you know, he was a legend back then, especially fresh out of 
high school and college, breaking records. And then my roommate for like four years, uh, he played for the Raiders. He had one of the biggest contracts back then before he passed away. His name was Daryl Russell. And so he was like right behind Warren Sapp at the time of like being one of the, be the best guys out there, 6'5", 330. And so, for, you know, I, me standing next to him going around for four years was like a very fun experience. But he loved clubs and he loved girls. So my two roommates were these football players that loved girls. I liked girls. I was partying. I was going out a lot, but I was throwing the events. And so I'm not the one to go, like, I'm not going to approach them. I'm an introvert by nature, which is weird because I have such a huge network, but I'm so quiet. And so what I do is, if we went to a bar together, Rich and I, and Gianni, if we're at the bar, I'm not going to go talk to a single girl. It's not going to happen. But if I can create an environment or a scene, I'll talk to her for hours, and she's, she's going to be with us for the night, like, and all her friends are going to come over, and they're going to be friends with us for the next decade, and our circles are going to be like this forever. So I can do it, but I knew myself that I was an introvert, so I would throw the events. I would throw the parties. I would throw charity events. I would throw business events, and that's why I'm always throwing events. Create the space to hold the conversation. Exactly. You have to, you have to play, play to your weaknesses, right? If I know I can't do it because – I, you know, I like dating girls. I liked going out, but I also knew that I was never going to be the good wingman of going out there and rallying girls. You know? And also, honestly, like having uh, social anxiety, people don't like to talk about it, uh, especially people that rely on their social life. But it's usually the people that are out all the time that are having that social anxiety, you know. So for you to just uh, be confident enough to say, you know what, let me create my own environment, space that I'm comfortable in, where at least you know that you've created the fun, right? So that's why you brought everyone. You didn't have to really do any talking. I mean, actors, a lot of times, Robert De Niro, you know, you meet them in person, they're very understated, and, you know, Kevin Durant's like that. And then they're such big personalities in their profession. I guess it's the same with you, right? When you become Dan Fleischman, the entrepreneur, when you're going and building your network, but when it comes to real life, at times it's harder to have conversation unless you're in a more intimate circle. I think a lot of people feel that. Yeah, I often tell people how to build a network is to be the person throwing the event because then everybody, first of all, they edify you. They put you on a pedestal because you're throwing the event. Second, they want to introduce who they're with to you because you're the one throwing the event. And so if you were living in Wichita, Kansas, but you throw a real estate event once a month and it's just a local bar or a local restaurant, local hotel, you become the man or the woman in your city because everybody wants to go to your real estate event, even though you got the ballroom for free, you got the drink sponsored. You spent 600 bucks on the whole thing total. All of a sudden, everybody looks at you like you're the man or the woman in your town. And they're like, hey, this is my friend. He's the CEO of Coldwell Banker. Hey, this is my boy, Kevin Durant. He wants to buy a $4 million house out here and invest in properties. And hey, like, all of a sudden, just because you threw the event. And so I try to do that in each space. I throw events like why I'm here in Arizona right now. I threw an event last night. I'm constantly throwing events from charity events, the business events, et cetera, because that causes people to want to be around me and my circle. What did uh, Ricky Williams and all them say when you were also winning national championships in like, uh, what were the games? Poke it was a Pokemon game or something? Uh, Magic the Gathering and uh, Pogs. What is that exactly? I don't even know what that is. Pogs was a game that's like a little uh, cardboards and you have like a, a harder piece. That's like, that's what's going to flip it over. And so let's say you and I were playing and Johnny was playing. We'd all put a stack of these Pogs out and we try to flip them over if I flipped over your pogs, I won your pogs. If Gianni flipped over my pogs, Gianni wins both of our pogs. And so that game was intense back then. You played for money? You played for pogs, which is the same as money because those, you know, it costs you 25 cents, 50 cents. 
you got sometimes you'd pay like a three dollars or five dollars for one of those mm-hmm. a slammer which would be the what would flip the cart the pogs over um yeah it was intense and you were the national champion i was yes but i was 14 at the time you got a ring <laughs> they actually gave me this big board of pogs that my mom still has that was my my prize it was like five grand worth of pogs that's cool so tell me that the energy drink and i saw that you were the uh, you had a company that went on um, stock exchange. So what was that period of your career? Yep. So the clothing brand evolved. I was working a lot in New York, working with some big big name guys, getting licenses from some. You know, we had the Rough Riders license from DMX back then. Again, this is almost 20 years ago. Uh, we had uh, Kevin Garnett had a brand called OBF Official Block Family. So we had these different brands there. We had the Sean John underwear license. We had the FUBU ladies license. So we had four or five brands together and I was in New York a lot out there. And um, it evolved into an energy drink. And when I did the energy drink, I knew I needed a lot of capital for it. And I was selling into thousands of department stores with the clothing, but the energy drink was gonna be the big name focus. So we decided we were gonna go public because we needed a lot of capital. And on April 1st, 2005, I was 23 years old. And I don't really remember the next four years because I didn't really sleep. All I did was sell, sell, sell my energy drinks. We had a cranberry pineapple and a green tea. And we had a zero sugar, zero carbs, zero calories. And so what I did was I went and met with every Budweiser, Coors, Miller, Pepsi distributor. At the same time, I meet with Costco, Walmart, Savon, Bonds, every chain store, gas station, et cetera. And we got into 55,000 retail stores in America. 23 to 27, I sincerely don't really remember. I just... Plane, trains, and automobiles went and got us into stores. I, don't, I didn't care about anything else. I, was, I had a girl at the time for that, like a six-year period, and I literally don't remember her. I don't remember it. I don't like – just <laughs> I just sold. That's it. I just sold. And are, how are you selling? Like are you cold calling? Are you like sending – like This is pre-social media. Besides MySpace, there was no social media. So like I was one of the first energy drinks to sponsor NASCAR. I sponsored the Utah State Fair. I'd, I'd send out t-shirts and energy drink cases to every celebrity possible, but they didn't really have social media either. But I was driving to Britney Spears and Kevin Federline's house and leaving it there. I was driving to record labels and dri- dropping off the record labels in the studios and leaving it for all these different music artists. I would go and find where's Little Wayne at and I'll show up with 40 cases of drinks. And like, here's, you know, I sponsored the Little Wayne concert in Tampa, Florida with a 16 foot yellow can on the stage next to him. Like I did whatever I could because social media didn't really exist. So I had to like, plug myself in with every music artist, rapper, athlete, et cetera. And so the sales were focused on chain stores, but each chain store was like your, your hub. But I would go to car washes, gas stations, liquor stores, grocery stores, everything around them too, to really help support the sales in that local town. And I wrapped vehicles. I wrapped 93 vehicles. So I wrapped 93 Hummers and semi-trucks all over the country. And those were kind of the the big staple in a city. So if Budweiser was my distributor, Budweiser would give me two to four trucks and take the Budweiser off and wrap it with my energy drink instead. And so they drive day and night through the city. You can't miss that, you know, big bright yellow, who's your daddy on the side of a truck. It's a, it's a crazy saying. So that's how I built it. I just blood, sweat, and tears. So you were funding that company at the time, the energy drink, just with the money you were making from the clothing line and from the trademark licensing. You didn't have institutional funding or anything, and then you built it big enough to take it. Um, what, what stock exchange did it come out on? It was on the OTC board, but we were a fully reporting company, so we weren't a pink sheet. Like Most people that go on the OTC boards, they're 
uh, not fully reporting companies, that's the nice way to put it. We were a fully reporting company for half a decade uh, the whole time I was there. So we stayed at, we stayed at like a 60 million, 150 million market cap most of the time, as far as I remember. It seems like, you know, when you're dropping off all that product to, you know, I don't want to call them influencers, but the people that, you know, in your circle, Britney Spears, Kevin Federline, whatsoever, I feel like you got those clients through the events that you were throwing earlier. Am I correct? Yes. So I would sponsor award show gifting suites. I would sponsor athletic events. I would sponsor charity events. And then I would throw all the same things as well. I would throw charity events, throw business events, throw sporting events. And so if I'm throwing the local charity basketball event and a few NBA players show up and they bring people and they bring people, I started to build my network in that sense. And again, because there wasn't social media, I was following up all the time. And the value I would provide, because you have to provide value as you're building your relationships, the value I'd provide was I was the kid that could get them clothing, energy drinks, but also invites to other people's events. So what happened was rappers want to be athletes. Athletes would want to be rappers. A lot of times influencers want to be movie stars. Movie stars want to work with influencers to build up their following. So I was always introducing them to each other. I was always throwing events where they could interact with each other so that I could be that plug. And then what would happen is both sides of relationships would want me to be involved in their stuff. And by default, that would help everybody because I can then combine everybody together. So is that what Elevator Studios and Elevator Nights then became? Yeah, so Elevator Studios is my social media agency. So we spent more on social media brand campaigns than anybody in history. We've done over 110,000 paid posts. So a lot of the posts that you love or hate on Instagram, that's what we do. From, from, from tea to fashion to teeth whitening, Lyft, DraftKings, Postmates, and everybody in between, we've been running those campaigns for years. Some of them full-time and some of them in spurts. Um, so that's my main focus, that we spend around $60 million with those influencers. Now, Elevator Nights is my business event. That's like Shark Tank. 300 to 1,200 people that attend. It's free. So I spend 400 grand a year keeping it free. No tickets, no sponsors, no sales on stage, nothing. Nothing's allowed. It's as pure as it gets. Those events, I've thrown 38 of those, and it's invite. So anybody can come to it that's an entrepreneur or an investor, and then the companies pitch on stage. So there's 12 companies that pitch. We narrow those 12 companies down from about 300 applicants. So about three to four percent get picked, and then from there, about half of them have been funded. So out of 38 company, 38 events, uh, 12 companies per event. That's about 600 um, companies. We've had about 250 that have been funded from those events. So it's like YC a lot. Yes. So Elevator is not the one cutting the checks. That's the only difference. It's that it's like YC is that we're throwing events that investors can invest into them. I've cherry picked from them. So I've done 36 investments, which sounds like a lot, but when we think about 38 events, 12 companies each getting pitched like you guys get pitched all the time. I've done 36, I've written 36 checks, but that's over the course of seven years. So I'm really only doing five or six checks a year. Why haven't I been invited to these? I'd love for you to come. All right, because you know, we love investing in those similar type stages. So what cool companies have come out of, um, out of Elevator Studios and Nights? Yeah, so, so we did a company called Trendy Butler, trendybutler.com. It's a monthly men's fashion company. We, we put in the first 150 grand. My friends put another 1.2 million more. That brand's gone on to do about 26 million in men's clothing. Uh, we did Dollar Beard Club. Uh, Dollar Beard Club went on to get like 77,000 members, 28 million revenue. Uh, same thing, we did the first check and then Bilzerian came in after us. We never raised money again after that. Uh, we did a company called Everbowl, which I post about a lot. Uh, Everbowl is an acai chain. Uh, they had about 21 locations when we started with them. 
Now they have 32 locations. By January, we'll be at 40. Um, but we don't just put in money. So that one, we did a much bigger check. But then I brought in other friends to put in 500K each on top of mine. And then I got them on QVC. They did seven figures with QVC. I got them a 20-store deal for their acai chain, uh, franchise chain. So that's another 2.4 million. Like I brought, outside of the checks, I try to bring in real revenue. So I only invest in companies that can help. Um, but yeah, there's been some fun companies that have come out. A few have exited. Uh, one went public. Um, but I only really focus on brands that are like clothing companies, consumer products, food and beverage, mobile apps, things that I can make famouser. That's what I'll invest in. So like if you do heart surgeries, God bless you, I won't invest because I'm glad you're doing that, but I can't help you at all. But if you make t-shirts with hearts on them, I can sell a lot of t-shirts with hearts on them. And so I try to be realistic about what I can do and what I can't do. And you don't take any carry from any of the other investors that are on the phone or anything like that. You're simply creating this network and sometimes you'll invest as an angel investor yourself, but you're creating the network and the infrastructure. And then you have your own infrastructure to then help the companies you invest in, similar to what Kevin and I do at 35 Ventures, where it's strategic, you'll invest. Sometimes we've invested in companies that aren't as down the middle in terms of what we can do to help them public facing, but I love the founder. So do you do any of those kind of companies too? What kind of companies? Companies that like may not be something you could promote, like albeit not heart surgery, but we did do some investments in like data storage and there's strategic business we can do behind the scenes at times. But for the most part, I agree with you. Yeah, we'll, you know, we similarly invest in companies where it makes sense with the rest of what we're doing as a brand. Yeah, so we focus mostly on companies that can really use our main skills and services. If we're cutting a check just to cut a check, that's not really my thing because I'm not, I'm not cutting a big enough check. My checks are 100K to 500K. So it's not like I'm writing them a $2 million or $5 million to change their, their world. I'll put in a quarter million, but my friends will all match me and, and throw in because I'm doing it. So I really try to focus on companies I can get my friends excited about. I can't get them excited about data storage, even though data storage could crush it. Listen, that's obviously those are gazillion dollar companies. I don't invest in them. I don't, and I'm going to say a really weird sentence. I don't invest for money. Yeah, I understand. I'm not going to get paid for seven years on average, if anything, right? If they've, if they make it, I'm probably not going to get paid back for seven years. And so I'm not investing for money because I don't make money along the way. I spend money and time and energy. And so I don't look at it like, oh, if I invest into the data storage, it's going to crush it. God bless people that do it. It's just not what I'm doing. I'm looking at what if I invest into this company at their series A and I can help them get to a series C or D and have an exit. That's, that's my fun. No, completely. And the network grows with every investment. Absolutely. It's so fun. Yeah, without question. Do you like the risk of it? I mean, there's part of all of this that like lives in the root of gambling to a degree. And you are a big poker player, right? You also are this word. You really have lived like a million lives, man. And you're young. I like that. I like that. Um, what was the whole poker thing? Are you still a poker player? Yeah, so I used to own an online poker site. And so I, I picked up and moved to Malta. And I never heard of Malta before. Start an online poker site. Similar with the energy drink, I never planned on being the biggest energy drink. I wanted to be the best tasting. And there was 900 drinks in the market. We became the seventh largest. But I never was planning on ever beating Red Bull, Monster, Rockstar. Same with poker. I'm not going to beat poker stars in full tilt. These are multi-billion dollar companies. I want to be the coolest poker site. So I signed Dan Bilzerian, DJ Steve Aoki, Playboy Playmates, the young poker pros, and I tried to become this creative marketing by getting all these characters right when social media was starting. This is 2008, 9, 10, when Twitter, Facebook, things are popping up. Um, and so the poker site became really big. All these guys and myself were playing on TV shows all over the world, 
and we were the young guns. But I also had Playboy Playmates playing on ABC and CBS and CNBC, like playing poker. And you got Sarah Underwood, Playboy Playmate, battling versus poker pros. It was really fun. And so people never seen uh, Steve Aoki all of a sudden making poker videos and playing, battling with other musicians, right? So from there, that became super, super big. And then all of a sudden, that became my biggest failure of all time because online poker got shut down in America. There was called Black Friday. And so I didn't get shut down. My competitors did. Poker Stars, Full Tilt, Absolute Poker all get shut down. By default, I become one of the biggest players in the world, if not the biggest, because my competitors are gone. But I didn't feel comfortable because the way that they got shut down, FBI and all these guys were. And so I never want to get the knock on the door. I don't want to ever have a weird situation. So I spent the next four days from April 15th to 19th paying back tens of thousands of people manually. Like literally, manually. Imagine 2010 manually paying back people through merchant processing. Really difficult. And so I had to do that so I could sleep at night because I didn't, I didn't know what the government was going to do. And I knew that the poker sites with their money frozen weren't going to be able to pay back all these people, which it took, ended up taking them years. And so I wanted to take the safe route so I could sleep at night and be the, the good guy in the space. Just pay everybody back, close up shop, and move on to the next one. That's amazing you did that. But why, why didn't they, like, why did you get kept from being shut down? What were you doing different? So what they did was they were miscoding merchant transactions. So let's say Gianni deposits 500 bucks on PokerStars. His, his credit card statement would say PS3, like a PlayStation. Then Rich goes and deposits 500 bucks, and it says mattresses.biz. And then Dan deposits 500 bucks, and it says flowers.edu. These are not what the company is, right? Mine was Victory Poker, and it was from Wells Fargo, and I had KPMG accounting. And that was it. And I had one bank account. It wasn't like, and so these guys had bank accounts in 16 different countries and miscoding transactions and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I didn't get in trouble because I didn't do what they were doing, which was miscoding merchant transactions. So you, how much money did you have to pay everybody back? Millions and millions and millions of dollars. Did it crush you personally? Yes. Emotionally, mentally, personally, it was the worst moment because my company was worth 65 million at the time. I was April 19th. I literally had booked flights for all the Playboy Playmates, all the models, photographers, videographers. We were all flying to Costa Rica. I spent 63000 on the tickets that were non-refundable because why do I need non-refundable? Like, why would I ever get refundable tickets? We're going for sure, right? And so I booked this resort, had everybody flying in from all over the planet. And instead, I spent the next four days paying everybody back. And so, yeah, that was – but I also say this. That was the best thing that ever happened to me for the rest of my life because now – that's the moment I realized and it can never have all my eggs in one basket again. That's when I became a consultant for different casinos, land-based casinos, a consultant for uh, Morgan Stanley, and I started angel investing, and I started my social media agency. So all of a sudden, I have income from three different things, and it changed who I was as a personal brand. And so that terrible moment became the best moment. Yeah. No, that, that that's like that make or break inflection point where it could have been rap city for you. Or sure. if you were a real one, like you are, you rolled up your sleeves and handled it. Did you, um, so you had had the poker business was the evolution of everything you had done to that point. So there was nothing else. When you went down, you were then building back up. Did you have money still? Or were you kind of like shit was getting tough? I still had money, but it was a different, different planet of money. All of a yeah. sudden I went from owning the majority shareholder of a company doing millions and millions of dollars a month living in living in Malta with only five employees. So I had very little overhead. I had a great situation. So all of a sudden shut it down, pay everybody back, lick your wounds and start over. So 
it was a it was the best time because those four land-based casinos i mean they paid me a lot to consult for them and then a big credit card company brought me on as consultant I was like giving me 50 grand a month type retainers by myself with no overhead and so i was getting that from half a dozen different companies and i rebuilt really fast i know you know i, th- I always thought of i thought about that earlier in my career too when i had like a good I had a studio and with Mark Ronson and was managing him and doing some music stuff, but wanted to branch out and bring in more revenue, which resulted in these consulting checks. And I always thought to myself, like how far I could have scaled that. You know, some people do have like these very simple one person operations and just cake out, but that's not, it's I, people like us that want to build, create, serve something and see like results and feel good about people liking what you make. You can't do that with consulting checks and stuff. No, I did that for, I did that for a year and a half or so. And then I started the social media agency and that was it. That was yeah. my whole focus. So when that, how old were you when that happened? That kind of shift? 2010. So I was 29, 30. You had a family at that point? No, I got married two years ago, um, but I don't have children yet. Oh, nice. Hopefully soon. So Aoki, you mentioned Aoki. He's like such an enigma, man. He's such an incredible. Gianni, did you ever see Steve Aoki's documentary? Uh, I did. Yeah. His crib in Vegas is sick. Yeah. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah. And his fans, like I, his, I don't know where they are. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to, but they're every they're like global for sure. I mean, they're global. He's filling up arenas in foreign countries. And I also think he has a teleport machine. Because I'll be with him in Vegas, and then all of a sudden he's performing the beats at the same night, and then all of a sudden he's in Shanghai. <laughs> I don't know how he does it. Um, you got to get him on the show. He's great. He's a he's a true entrepreneur. I knew his sister. I mean, I know his sister Devin a little bit because I had a group of friends in New York that all knew her. But I never. I, I and I met him with Mark Ronson and AM. You know, obviously. Um, but yeah, he's incredible. So um, you built the social media agency up and. This is growing. How big is that operation? Yeah, so we spend around sixty million, um, but I don't want to be VaynerMedia. Like I love Gary, but I don't want to have nine hundred employees. That's not what I'm building. I want to run lean and mean. So my company went from eighteen million in spend to sixty million in spend. I didn't hire a single soul. Like I just scaled the business from within. I brought on a CEO three years ago who was kind of like a legend in the game of he invented reality TV. So he was the original CEO of Buna Murray. So he created the real world, simple life, Kardashians. He was back with cops, like some of the first episodes of the cops. Uh, he ran Dr. Phil's company for years. So he lived and breathed reality TV for many years. And so I brought him on as CEO of Elevator Studios about three years ago. That's when my life changed. His name is Joey Carson. Joey came in and took over for me. And that really changed the evolution of the business where I became a very active investor, a very active personal brand, very active doing all these other projects because my day-to-day company was being run by Joey. So the company's still operating now. And you pay, so part of your cost out is you actually identifying influencers globally and paying them, paying them. And then finding products, combining the two, and you're creating campaigns around these influencers, et cetera, right? So, so brands give us the budget. So let's say you wanna have, I've done, let's say Kylie Jenner and Kim, and they're posting Fashion Nova or Fit Tea, or teeth whitening kits, that was me. When the, when the girls were posting about Lyft and Postmates, that was me. But if you want to have 75 micro-influencers with 46,000 followers each, that's me too. 
And so I'm doing celebrities, I'm doing music artists, athletes, but I'm also doing fitness influencer campaigns, protein campaigns, CBD campaigns, pet campaigns, beverage campaigns. So a beverage company would come to me, here's 100 grand or here's 500 grand or here's 2 million, go spend it for me effectively and then I do the reporting for them. But we handle everything. I don't have to talk to them. Once they give me the money and a clear idea of what they want or I tell them what they want, I, I don't have to interact with them after that. I go handle the entire campaign and give them a report. Are you reaching out to the brand and saying, hey, I've got this stock of 10 influencers and let's just say the skating space or the surfing space, whatever that space is, and saying we can put this together? Or are the people going to you and saying, hey, I want to work with this brand? Sure. So we have 3,500 influencers that we paid in the last year. 600 of them are on salary deals. So there's 3,500 influencers that we paid at least one check to that we gave a W-9 to in the last year. 600 of them are on repeat, meaning they've done more than one post or on their monthly salary. Most of the time, the brands are coming to us. I don't have an outbound sales team because social media is not for everybody. And so I'm not doing social media campaigns for a brand that doesn't make sense because what I do doesn't have the same KPIs as Vayner Media and other agencies can show them. Meaning, if those sunglasses that Johnny's wearing, if that company gave me a budget, if I go out and pay, let's say you, that sunglass company gave me 100 grand, I would say, hey, I'm gonna get you 50 influencers, they're gonna be an average of two grand each, that's the 100 grand budget. From there, I'm going to have them all post next Friday, okay? We're gonna do a, what I call a takeover. We're gonna have 50 influencers all post the same day, I'm gonna have 10 athletes, 10 in the music space, 10 beauty bloggers, 10 fashion people, and 10 fitness people, right? 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. That situation is understandable to a young CEO or a cool CEO or mid-sized brands, but a Fortune 500 company would never let me do that. It would wait six months to 12 months for me to do that campaign. They would need all this planning and understanding and analytics and this and that and reporting in advance. That's not for me. I just don't, I'm not, I'm not built for that. So I'm not built for Wendy's and McDonald's and Netflix. I've turned down Netflix and McDonald's six times. I just can't do it for them because I can't do all the stuff that they want in advance. And I'm not going to wait six to 12 months for a campaign because those might be different influencers in six months and you might want different people. I'm built for Fashion Nova and Pretty Little Thing and Boohoo and Nasty Gal and the, the cool sunglass companies and I'm ready to go right now. Like you want to do a campaign on this Friday? That's perfect for me. You want to do a campaign June 2021? I can do it, but call me in May because I'm ready to do it in two weeks. And can anyone go to you for like, do you have any demographic? If I, if it's, if I said I wanted the boardroom to get in front of people that are college kids that are interested in sports business. Yes. So we would find, we would target influencers that have that type of following. So we're not running paid media. I'm running focusing on influencer marketing. So I would go find influencers that have that. So if you think Gary V or Ty Lopez has this big college, a young adult following, then I'm going to go offer Gary and Ty as the example. I'm going to go offer Gary, Ty, Lewis Howes, different podcasters that might have those type of followers. I'll offer them a paid post or usually I like to do three posts minimum so that they'll really get behind something to post about that. That's really cool, man. This makes sense to me. This is really dope. Yeah. And I expl and it makes a lot of sense why you don't work with like a McDonald's or some of these other brands because they want numbers, impressions, all these things. And it's hard to quantify cultural currency. Correct. So most brands, they need it, right? They need their KPIs. They need their metrics. They need to be able to show, okay, Dan had Rich post and Gianni posted and they have 
mid-sized followings, okay? They want to see how many clicks went to their website, how much it converted to sales that day. That doesn't work like that. If Rich posts three times and Johnny posts three times, me as a follower, I feel like you actually are part of the brand. You like those headphones or you like those glasses. If Johnny says, hey, buy these glasses, it's not going to go drive 64 sales today, right? But Johnny likes these glasses. He posts today on the podcast. Then in two days, he posts again right before he goes to catch. Then he posts again three days later when he's out on a date. Three different times, three different situations. And then a fourth post five days later, right after the gym. He's leaving the gym, he puts his glasses on and walks out. Okay? He never said buy these glasses. That will crush and destroy the numbers of Gianni saying buy these glasses the first post. Not even close. It was like night and day. But most brands don't feel comfortable with that. They needed to say use code Gianni for 20% off right this second. Nobody's going to use code Gianni. Right? Anybody wants to buy the glasses, they're not buying it because it's 10 or 20% off. It doesn't happen. Tell every single brand you know. It doesn't, nobody cares about your 10% off. Okay? <laughs> they mandate it because they need to track how many glasses did Gianni sell in that one day. They don't realize that Gianni's going to sell those same glasses three days from now, five days from now, and three months from now because people feel a part of it because Gianni talked about it multiple times. And so that you can't track. Yeah. You can't track cool. So do you give these influencers a little bit of the sauce or the, the roadmap or, or most of them already got the game down? Because what, what makes up an influencer? Like you have to have a skill in order to do it. They don't have to have a skill. Okay, well teach me why, teach me why. The biggest influencer in the world right now is a 16-year-old girl that has no skill or talent, right? Charlie D'Amelio, Charlie's got 100 million followers in a year. That's the most staggering, insane thing ever. She has no skill, no talent, doesn't claim to. That's not an influencer. Of course she's an influencer. If Charlie tells you to sell those cactuses that are next to you, she will sell more cactuses than anybody in the planet right now. Charlie is the mega influencer. I got I to gotta say something, though. When, you, when someone gets that famous without a skill in the world of reality, which is like social media, reality TV, where really like there's no difference between scripted, non-scripted. It's just you have to have a skill. You have to have a skill to become famous in the world of non-scripted. So putting her aside, a non-celebrity that you would hire, it's not necessarily the biggest following, right? It's literally who you find that's influential and can sell product. So there's different types of influencers. There's niche influencers, meaning a niche influencer is someone that's in the health and fitness space or they, they're always cooking. That person will crush it selling cooking-related products, may not help you sell headphones, right? A music artist, everybody's following that music producer because he's always making great beats, et cetera, et cetera. When he posts him cooking, can he move units? It's possible but nowhere near the person that has a much smaller, one-tenth of the following, that person that actually makes cooking videos will crush that person. Those are niche influencers, right? Then there's mass market influencers, meaning they just have 400,000 followers because they're a good-looking guy or girl. That's it. They just built up this following. They are still an influencer, but they will move much less units of your cooking, your cookbook or your headphones because people are following them because they look good, not necessarily because they believe that or care what they wear on their head or what they cook. Now, there are plenty of influencers with 5, 10 million followers that do not move the needle whatsoever. However, they get so many impressions and eyeballs, a lot of brands don't need them to move the needle. They need them to give them eyeballs for cheap. Social media posts are the cheapest cost per, th cost per thousand. The CPM rate, the cost per thousand rate of an influencer 
is the smallest of any medium. Okay, so I'll give you some examples. Billboards, TV, radio, average 30 to $40 CPM rate, meaning you're paying 30 to $40 per thousand people that see it. So if you want to get a million people, you're going to spend like 30 grand to a million people. With social media influencers, you're talking about one, two, and three dollars CPM rate. So you're, when you're saying 30 and 40 compared to one, two, and three, this isn't a little difference. This isn't like 20 versus 40. We're talking about two and three dollars versus 30 and 40 dollars. And so it's staggering how many eyeballs you can get for your new movie, your new music video, your new song. Like I've done fun campaigns with Tyga and different characters that their song comes out. That's not going to convert to downloads that second, but because I have 50 girls post about a Tyga song, all of a sudden people are like, whoa, why did 50 girls just post about Tyga's song today? And I gave them a very strategic campaign and way to do it so it felt real. So is this a can't miss um, solution? Like if I, let me give you a case example. The boardroom or boardroom because I dropped the the. Do you like that better? It's just boardroom now because it's it's a brand. It's a platform. Right, you don't want to be the, the Facebook. No, you're Facebook. No, there you go. <laughs> I've heard that. Um, so could a brand say to you, we put out a handful of shows, podcasts, a newsletter, we create merch, we're a brand. Could they say, hey, okay, influencers help create a create more of an audience for a brand? Does it work? Yeah, of course. So there's different characters that have podcasts and authors that we've done campaigns, about 30 of them, that are well-known authors, well-known influencers, and well-known speakers that we're mutual friends with. We've done campaigns for them. Some of them as small as 25 to 100 grand. Some of them have spent $800,000 plus with me to make them more famous on Instagram. What we do is we'll have a Neil Patel or a Ty Lopez or a different author or speaker, we'll take a video edifying them or we'll make a bunch of influencers hold up a sign about them. So Neil Patel, he's a super nerd. You know, he's got 2 million readers on his blog. He's consultant for household name companies. He's had huge exits. He's like the, the king of all the nerds and he loves it. He's passionate about it. So I had over 100 girls hold up signs, like literally like boxing ring signs saying, who is Neil Patel? It's just, that's all it said. Nothing else. Who is Neil Patel? He said his Google rate, like the amount of people Google searching him, went so astronomical through the roof, he started spending another six figures with me because he just wanted this to keep going of people searching, who is Neil Patel? On a podcast, we'll take someone with a podcast and we'll take a clip from it and we'll have influencers post of them in the car listening to the podcast or them about to go to bed with the podcast or them waking up and saying, hey, every Saturday morning I listen to this podcast by... Ed Milet or Lewis Howes or Andy Frisella, et cetera, those are very real feeling because most of them do like that podcast or they do like that song. So in your podcast example, you'd go to influencers and have them post about the podcast of an episode that was your biggest hit. So if it's you and Gary Vee on your recent episode, you have a bunch of influencers saying, man, I just listened to this podcast. Rich and Johnny were interviewing Gary Vee, blah, 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 on the boardroom. They don't have to say, go download the boardroom. They just got to say that they liked it or they're, they're listening to it. And then those organic situations, that's how you get more listeners. Yeah. But you got to make a long-term commitment, right? You, I'm sure you tell your brands or your clients, like, don't do this for a month. I don't do campaign. I don't do short-term campaigns. And I, I have a 25K minimum because it won't do anything. You don't need me to spend 5K for you, right? If you have a sunglasses brand or a podcast or anything in between, I don't do small campaigns because small campaigns don't really move the needle and you don't need me for that. What I do is not rocket science. It's a lot of common sense and a lot of experience combined, but there's no rocket science of me saying, hey, 
Tyga or Hey the Boardroom or Hey Sunglasses Company and all these examples have people with followings say that they like your stuff. That's the bottom line, right? So it's not rocket science. What I do is how do I make that feel real? Because I've done this 110,000 posts. Like I've done this so many times. I know the words and the emojis and the caption, you know, like the little details. But ultimately, everything I just said was a basic roadmap that you and Johnny and Terrence and Armand, you guys can go do this right now and, and interact with influencers and tell them to post about your podcast for free or for a small amount of money. Terrence is our uh, producer and editor. I think I might just pay you to make him Instagram famous. Sure, there you go. So back to Aoki and this new endeavor and how I learned about you. And it's funny, whenever you hear about somebody in a particular field or however you came to my attention, I started realizing how I'd heard about you before. Um, you know, the puzzle pieces come together. But you're at the forefront of what, at least within the industry of sports and business, is being talked about all the time is trading cards. So you started as a kid, but... Everyone did to some degree, and a lot of people were big invest, uh, big collectors, and they collected the wrong things. I have a friend who has an addict of, an addict of baseball cards in the '80s and '90s, and it has no value. Um, so, when did you get back into it, and what's kind of the plan right now for you? Sure. So last year, Gary V asked me to come to Chicago to the convention called the National, and so I was I was already going to go to Chicago, so. The time he was there, he was going to be there for the week. So I said, yeah, I'll come by for three or four hours. I ended up staying for three or four days. So I'm just at the booth with Gary, and it's, it's D-Rock and his kid. It's like everybody's at the booth, and we're just there for a couple of days, and I'm watching his excitement. It's mind-blowing. I can't explain it. Like, he would buy a card for 80 bucks, but have it sold at the other booth for 135 bucks. Take two hours to plan and strategize and run back and forth to make this $55. And it was like he just sold the, you know, bought the Jets. Like, it was like, the $55 transaction was mind-blowing. And at the same time, he's got a 900-point company and a gazillion dollars of other deals. His pure joy was it was inside of me. Like I could feel how excited he was and made me excited. And so I started buying some cards there, but I didn't go there planning to have a bunch of money or what I was going to do. I just thought I was stopping by. So I had 10K, and I bought, I bought a LeBron. I bought a Jordan. Like These cards were 2400 bucks, are now 20000 card I paid 600 bucks for is now 5000 these are not little returns. And so that convention led to a group chat. So Gary and I started a group chat. Then there's four different group chats of different types of characters from Aoki, Lewis Howes, and those type of characters to like traditional business guys and cannabis guys, and etc. And so we all started buying cards. And I started realizing I bought a lot of cards. And then I bought a lot more cards. And then all the guys started buying a lot of cards. And the group chat started all of a sudden having millions of dollars of cards then over $10 million of cards and $20 million of cards because all these business guys just kept buying cards. And so the Kevin Durant card, I bought like 67 of those Kevin Durant cards because Gary was like, oh, it's going to be a good card. So I bought as many as I could because I like Kevin Durant. I believe in his rookie card. When he comes back, he's going to go up. I'm going to make that investment. That happened not once, not twice, not three times, but with like the 20 guys I was buying kept going up, but not a little bit. You're talking about 400%. 600%, 800%, numbers that as an investor I can't grasp, but it doesn't make any sense. And so what happened was I'd hit like a half a million dollar mark and I just had these cards on my floor. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Like, where are we going with this? Like, what's going to happen? And so 
the next like three weeks it hit a million dollars and then she like sat me down i said okay you can do whatever you want obviously go buy as many cards you want but like is there a plan and i'm showing her like no look honey like the cards keep going up look i bought it for two grand now it's 4600 like i'm showing her so i can not get in trouble showing her that it keeps going up but then gary says something about like most of the sports card shops are very old school and i was driving around i went to 30 different sports card shops and that's how i built most of my collection i bought hundreds of thousands of dollars of cards from local card shops <laughs> and the experience was terrible because most of the time it's the guy's 64 years old he's been there for 26 years tied to that chair and he won't change for anything and so gary jokingly said something about making a, a card shop called cards and coffee i was like oh i'll do it and so the group chats all got excited like you know people talk shit in group chats all the time but i like to take action so i literally went and got a lease and i said i'm gonna do it so I actually got a lease at the W Hotel in Hollywood because I have a place there and my office is a block away. So I was going to put it at the W Hotel and put my acai place next door and I got this lease. But the W Hotel took way too long. And so DJ Ski says, hey, I got Dash Radio. I got 25,000 square feet. We're closed down for COVID. Why don't you take the front space at Dash and you can just put your card shop there and just rent for me. I was like, oh, great. And then Steve Aoki is like, wait a minute, can I be involved in this? And so Aoki and DJ Ski became my co-founders, not by accident, but kind of like I didn't need them to. They didn't put any money in. I, I had a $1.9 million collection at the time once I got everything together. I wasn't raising money. I, would, I just all of a sudden Aoki and Ski are my co-founders. I go, this is fun. And then the group chats are just rooting me on. I get this place. I open up. And then seven weeks later, I built out as fast as I could and opened up Cards and Coffee. So Cards and Coffee, are you literally selling coffee and there's other stuff in there or is it just a card shop? It's just a card shop. So there's actually a, a sign when you walk in that says, I didn't come for the coffee. Oh, I like it. Just like I just like, just, just like ended up at One Oak, it's the same thing. Yeah, I, I like it. Didn't come for the coffee. We do giveaway coffee there for free, for fun. And you do live breaking from there how many hours of the day? So that's the coffee breakers. So the coffee breakers, we go live at 11 a.m. each day, and we're usually ending between midnight and 3 in the morning. So I have six full-time breakers, so they can split up the shifts. Uh, but they're morning, noon, and night. You know that we're on day 74. Uh, we've done 1.4 million in sales in 74 days, from from scratch, from zero. Now we're averaging like 20 to 30 thousand a day in revenue, and just really streamlining this process. So we're breaking it from 11 a.m. to 3 a.m. And the goal is, the coffee breakers is our main channel, but then we'll do it for sports, for Pokemon, for football, for basketball, for soccer. So they have their each individual channel so also so ultimately ideally we'd have four or five channels under the same the coffee breakers type name but for each sport individually so we can try to break 10 20 30 grand a day per per sport and ultimately the dream vision is it goes 24 7 and that's because the international market will come into this into this space and when that happens the time zones will play into it right now 11 a.m to 3 a.m one main channel and then we started a second channel recently called the Pokey Breakers. Where we're breaking Pokemon boxes because we were doing like four to six grand a day of Pokemon. But it gets awkward if Rich likes football and Gianni likes basketball. Neither of you care about Pokemon, right? So when we start breaking Pokemon, you're going to log off and you might not come back. And that's, that's scary to me. And so we're making an individual Pokemon channel because there is a lot of requests for it, but it doesn't make sense for most people watching. Got it. So let me ask some quick, quick fire questions about this business. So, Cards and Coffee is the physical retail establishment. Would you be opening more of those? 
So we will, uh, but there's no rush on that simply because the card shop itself is not the true revenue generator. The card shop is like our flag in the ground. Out of the 1.4 million in sales, less than 400,000 of that was from the store. So it's almost a three to one, maybe four to one in sales difference. But the card shop gives us credibility. People feel comfortable sending us their cards for PSA grading, leaving cards on consignment. People leave us $100,000 in cards on consignment. I want to have a safe, nice retail location. I will end up with other locations, but I'm not sure when and why. Got it. So people give you their collections and then you break their collections. Other people call in. And then what's your economics with them, with the people that have given you their collections? Sure. So when people give us their individual cards, we're selling there and we're keeping 10% on consignment. If people are giving us uh, boxes, we don't really take people's boxes. Uh, most people don't give us boxes. We just buy people's boxes. So for the most part, we're buying from distributors, from retailers, from the chains, and then some people will buy their boxes from them. But ultimately, what we're breaking is Prism, Panini, uh, Upper Deck. We're breaking mainstream boxes of the different sports. We're breaking those, but we're buying those from retailers, distributors, and the brands directly. The consignment part is mostly Rich says, hey, I've got 30 extra Kobe cards. I want to sell these and buy more Kevin Durant cards. You'll send me your 30 Kobe's. I'll sell them for you and keep 10% and then send you the money. And the goal is, so I'm so you'll have multiple channels of breaking happening uh, at some point 24-7, and it'll be verticals of different sports, Pokemon, et cetera. And it all lives right now on social media and YouTube. Is there a coffee breakers kind of like web property or app that you're building out? So for right now, people buy on the coffeebreakers.com. Then they're doing it through Instagram Live, YouTube Live, and we have one of the largest Facebook groups in the world. So we have, when I say, that's for sports, not for all Facebook groups. So we have 47,000 members of the Facebook group, specifically approved people in the sports card space. So it's very active. We have a 78% active rate, which is really crazy for a Facebook page. And so we go live in the Facebook page, we go live on the Instagram page, we go live on the YouTube page. But all of it happens on thecoffeebreakers.com. So people check out through the Coffee Breakers and they can buy their slots, either personal breaks, team breaks, et cetera, all on the website. At some point, we may do something that's an app uh, where people can do it interactively through an app. Right now, we're just practicing. We're getting everything ready, getting our systems in place. We're shipping. We're doing same-day shipping, which nobody else is focused on. I want to be like the perfect operation. Most stores and most breakers have three employees. We have 18. So I'm really building this to be a full-fledged scalable operation. I'm acting as if I'm doing $2 million a month when I'm still at 600 k or 700 k a month. Are you raising money or you're funding it? So I will raise some money, but a small rounds. I don't want to, I don't need it. We're very profitable. We have 20 to 40% margins. So when I'm doing 20, 30 K a day in revenue, I'm netting four to six K, seven K, eight K a day, separate from the cards themselves, which can be bigger. And I contributed my 1.9 million collection to the game, to the, to the space. And so I have a couple friends that put in some money, just a couple hundred grand each, just to be a part of it with us that are also active sports card guys. Uh, your mutual friends with some of them. Outside of that, I haven't taken any capital, but I will take some in only for buying more wax. I don't need any money for the actual business because the business is very profitable now. I have to do three to 400K a month to be a profitable business. I'm double that already. And so on month three, you know, 74 days. And so the capital that I do want to bring in, I would like to be able to buy a bunch more wax. I want to buy a bunch more boxes just to have that recyclable money 
because we're selling through so fast. You know, I'm selling in the first 14 days of uh, December, we've already at 400,000 sales. Like I'll send you the screenshot. It's nuts. Like I sent you one when we hit a million on day 62, we've done 400,000 since then. See Gianni, I've been, you know, I, as I've told you, I'm starting to get into this a little bit. Um, not to the scale of what you're doing, but trying to make it a part of my business. And I think it's hard for people to understand. And it's been the last two or three months. And now I think Gianni, you've seen, we've hired people just for this vertical as well. And he's heard me talk about you. This thing has boomed, right? Is this as fast to growing an industry as you've ever been a part of? Yeah, it's mind blowing because the competitors have so many inefficiencies. So my competitors, most of them are just doing it from their apartment. And so it's hard for them to scale when there's just one, two or three of them and they won't go out there and bring on employees to help them scale because they don't want to. They're, I don't want to say too cheap, but they don't understand how to scale and they don't understand that's investing in their business. And so I call it Blockbuster versus Netflix. There's hundreds and hundreds of people that are breakers or hundreds and hundreds of retail stores out there. There's about 280 retail stores. They are all slow in that sense that they won't change and they won't invest in marketing. Like I'm bringing in influencers and different talent to come in there, promote all the time. I'm doing giveaways all the time. They won't do those things. And so because of that, I don't feel like I have like a Barstool Sports to compete with. And, and by the way, if Barstool Sports starts one or the boardroom starts one, that's fantastic because people don't buy from one breaker, right? People are going to go the same way you go to Vegas. You don't gamble at one casino only. You like to go to multiple casinos. You don't only gamble with DraftKings. Everybody that has a DraftKings account has a FanDuel account. And so I'm not scared of competition. I'm actually promoting them. I spend money with them. I'm having fun with them. I'm sending them boxes. Like the, that part is fun. Like the other breakers, especially the big ones, we're very friendly. Like we're always helping each other get more wax because that's the hardest part is literally getting the boxes because there's no deals out there. Let me just tell you, there's no discounts because we're all ripping six figures a day between, between four or five breakers. We're ripping six figures a day combined, a day. It's not like there's tens of millions of dollars of boxes of those specific boxes because they only make a few thousand of this or 20,000 of that or 30,000 that. 20 to 30,000 boxes sounds like a lot. When you start to think about, wait a minute, if all of us are breaking six figures a day, and that means they're probably breaking seven figures a day combined, what's going to happen 60 days from now, 90 days from now, 120 days from now, as more and more breakers come in? It's a fascinating space, but there's still a lot of inefficiencies. And for the record, the exciting thing I think for us is we're not going to be doing any breaking. I really think what we're going to do is cover the community and highlight people like yourselves and highlight the new deals that are happening. So I'm excited about how much we can collaborate in that way because, um, you know, from a content perspective, we just want to tell the stories of the people that are dominating this industry now. So what's the future for Coffee Breakers? What could it evolve into or is it just the sheer scale of revenue that this could be as a network of streaming? So my, my true goal is I would like some stores in key markets, but again, those are flags in the ground. If I could be in New York or Vegas, Miami, et cetera. Ultimately, the Coffee Breakers being a 24-7 channel with multiple channels is the big play. And if it could end up being on TV or an app where people could actually watch internationally and know this is the big thing, like kind of like you know Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or any of those type of shows, I think there's a big play that somebody could do in the TV space to have one of those type of shows. Remember that game? What's that one that had like a, a HQ trivia? Somebody making either an HQ trivia or the TV version of HQ trivia for live breaking where Kevin Durant's there for the hour and he's the host for the night and we're actually ripping open boxes from his rookie year and a hundred grand is going to charity for the day. There's a lot of fun things that could happen from that. 
And it, and do you think it's a bubble? Is there any, well, there is a bubble to it, but the industry I think withstands it. But there's got to be a bubble to it to, to a degree. Sure. So the cards going up this much is crazy. So you will have you don't have a a ceiling right now because some cards went from Luca was seventy bucks and now it's sixteen hundred. That's too much, right? Where does he go from there to two thousand to three thousand to four thousand? Like when does it stop? Um, but I will say that when the bubble does pop, for example, there's a way bigger catcher's mitt. There's a lot of people with a lot of money. It's similar to Bitcoin. If Bitcoin can't go down to a thousand bucks right now, it can't go from eighteen thousand, nineteen thousand down to one thousand. There's too many hedge funds and too many rich people all over the planet that will keep buying it at four grand, five grand, eight grand, ten grand to keep supporting it now, right? The junk wax era, there was in the eighties, nineties, there was millions and millions and tens of millions of cards, but there was no eBay, there was no StockX, there was no infinite Facebook groups and channels and breakers, et cetera, to soak up the collections and soak up the market. Now there is. So LeBron, his main rookie card, the number 111, becomes 15 grand. It can't drop to two in one day. It doesn't happen because me and too many of my friends will come in and buy it up at five grand, eight grand, nine grand on that drop. So I think if, if the bubble happens or there's a decline, which there was a decline in August, if there's a decline, it's not going to be as dramatic as people think because there's too big of a catcher's mitt of people and hedge funds. Yeah. And too much money invested in now on ancillary business and all these um, mergers and acquisitions. So do you think you could ever work for somebody? I cannot. And it's not that I have an ego about it. It's that the way I work as an entrepreneur doesn't fit into the corporate mold. And I've been torn. There's been some times where I've, I've actually talked with like big recruiters. I'm like, hey, if there ever becomes an opportunity to go run Nike or Beats by Dre or Netflix or like a cool brand that I love, I think I'd want to do that just to put a feather in my cap, even if I just did it for a couple of years. But then I've been in corporate environments where I go sit with Forever 21 and I've been in head, Forever 21 headquarters 15 times and nothing happened and it took them a year to move. I can't be in that environment. I can't sit in a six to 12 months waiting game of politics. That's not built for me. And so I don't want to put myself in that situation. So to answer your question, I could in theory, but it would have to be where I have free reign. And then we see what happened at Forever 21. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Gianni, that do you think that's the norm amongst your generation? Like I'm trying to do this my own? Because like amongst my friends, I was an outlier. Like everyone else was getting a job. I mean, I think like, you know, there's different levels. I think, you know, getting a good corporate job out of school and working your way up at a company is a total vibe. And I think doing it on your own and creating your own work life and work schedule and work environment is definitely a vibe too. It's 2020, man. Anything's possible. What do you, you sound like a, like a politician from 20 years ago, like not even a politician from today. But I'm saying your crew, your people around you, do they, do they go get jobs or do they want to go build companies and clothing lines and shit? They're building, they're, def, they're definitely building their own individual brands and trying to apply it either at a corporate situation or just on their own. I think it's the best time ever to do both. Get a corporate job, make, make 64 grand a year from your corporate job. And at nighttime, you can get a lot done with two or three hours a night on, because there's so many apps and there's so much website, so much help. Like your legal Zoom is going to help you with your legal stuff. You have all these website applications, all your social media you can build. Like you can work three hours a night and, and really get a lot done until you finally built your clothing line to make your exit out of a company. Too many people just rip the bandaid off and try to go start their company. 
They don't need to. There's too much you can do with a couple hours a day right now and still have your income because if you run out of money, that's the biggest failure for all these businesses and all these startups that Rich and everybody invests into. Their main problem is that they run out of money and they run out of money because they ran out of time most of the time. They didn't understand that they actually needed one year runway or two years of runway and they only raised for six months and they actually would have made it. They would have been successful, but they ran out of money. That's why you hear a lot of those stories about companies that almost went broke and then became huge. Well, most of the time, if that CEO didn't save the company, then the company would be gone. And so I, I like to tell people, don't quit your job. Don't quit your day job. Keep that income coming in because the, the cash that you have is the most vital fuel for your car. Before I let you go, this has been dope, man. I mean, I selfishly learned a lot about trading cards. Um, because I'm getting into this business, it was it was good for me to hear from you. And we wanted to do this for so long. We, Johnny and I were going to come by the store when we were in L.A., but we got too bougie and sat outside at the Beverly Hills Hotel and had lunch. And then we had to rush to the airport. But I read that you have been giving back your whole life. And, and again, that really impressed me because you know, it's something that I think is crucial now more than ever but it's crucial for all of us i mean i think that's you know a big fabric of our business so tell me about the 100 million academy i read something about what you had built yep so 100 million academy it's people pay around 1200 for the year to get trained we have 300 hours of content on there and then every day at 6 p.m we go live with different instructors to teach people but then we'll give to low-income communities uh, African-American groups, women's groups, will give them comp annual memberships so that they can learn. So they don't pay the $1,200 because we want them to learn from real business entrepreneurs. And then I try to incorporate charity events into everything I do. This Sunday, I'm throwing our sixth annual toy drive. We bring in semi-trucks of toys to give out to uh, through Trina's Kids Foundation to 300 families. And then we give all of our extra toys to the city of Watts. On January 11th, we're doing the biggest charity giveaway in sports card history. Uh, we're giving away a $150,000 box, the 1986 Fleer Jordan box. Um, we're giving that away, like completely free. There's no entry allowed. And it's with Vegas Dave. So he paid for this $150,000 box. And then we're, we're going to go live and give out 18 packs to 18 different charities. And so hopefully around three Jordans will get pulled from that box. Those Jordans are going for twenty five grand for a PSA 9. But most recently this week, they went for $202,000 for a PSA 10. So we're hoping by giving away some three of these charities are going to get like 20 to 100 grand worth of money uh, for getting these Jordans. And so I try to incorporate it, whether it's my sports card shop, giving away 150 grand of, you know, an 86 filler box, whether it's my, my main passion where we're giving out toys to the kids or backpacks to the homeless. I try to incorporate charity events into everything that I do because I want influencers a part of the charity. I want the rappers a part of the charity. I want my friends a part of the charity. I want my entrepreneur business friends a part of the charities. And I'm not raising money for myself ever. I don't raise money for my charities. I spend all the money for my charities so that my charities have a 0% overhead. I pay for everything. So not a dollar goes to cost. So if I hire staff, I throw events, I rent out warehouses and bring people in, I pay personally for all of it because I want people to re replicate me. I don't need you to donate to me or my charity. We're, we're fine. I'm going to keep doing this. I want, the, I want a Gianni in Miami, Florida to replicate what I'm doing and he go give out backpacks. He goes and does a toy drive. He knocks me off. Go do his own version. Make it bigger and better than mine. And that's why I'm so passionate about charities, why I'm always posting about them, and why I incorporate it in every single business that I do. Well, I knew this was going to be dope. I want to tell you, man, thank you for uh, an inspiring conversation because I find so much motivation in talking to people like you, people that 
have like this zest for life that realize that life can be fun to make your mark when you're here. I assume that everything I'm saying right now resonates with you because I can see it in talking to you, that leaving a legacy, uh, being regarded for your work and filling up the hours in your day with challenges and it's bigger than money. And you know, that's, that's what I love about this. So I could do this for hours. I appreciate it, man. Let's keep building. And um, thank you, Dan. Dan. Thanks for having me. This is fun.